Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. My author's number one Australian bestseller. Number one. Mm. Okay. I'm sure mine will be eventually. (laughs) Good stuff. Well, look, we're always encouraged to get to know our neighbours. It makes a good community. It also makes a particularly good read. And this is what we have in Leanne Moriarty's latest book, Truly Madly Guilty. Welcome. Thank you so much. Oh, I'm delighted to have you down here in Melbourne. We, we often don't see you down here. Oh, oh, I'm coming a lot. I'll be back for the, the Writers' Festival. So, oh. so no, I'm, I'm thrilled to be here. And it's quite, it's quite balmy today, really. <laughs> <laughs> Look, your book has got so much rain in it. I'll never believe Sydney has another sort of dry sky. <laughs> yes, that was enjoyable writing that. Actually, I was writing it in beautiful sunny weather and imagining rain day after day after day. Day after day yeah. after day, yes. Well, truly madly guilty. Before we get on to the neighbours getting together, we really need to talk about the friendship, which is at the core of this book. How did Clementine and Erica become friends? So Clementine, uh, her mother is a hoarder. So I actually came up with this character originally when I read the memoir of a woman whose mother was a hoarder. And so I learned all about the the lives these people lead where they can often from the outside appear perfectly normal. Their clothes are, you know, they still manage to have beautifully laundered clothes and to look like they're well fed. But behind closed doors, they're living in this terrible environment. So they often suffer from something called doorbell dread. So whenever the doorbell rings, they're terrified that people will open the door and discover their terrible secret. So I wanted to write about a character who was living in this sort of environment and then she she meets Clementine's mother, and Clementine's mother is one of those lovely, caring, uh, socially aware people who encourages her friend to her daughter, sorry, to uh, take on Erica as a friend. Uh, and see, I wanted to write about. Uh, I think it happens a lot more than we realise that. Families take on children in a very non-official way, but they're sort of surf on their couches for mm. quite uh, sometimes months at a time. So Erica becomes really a part of Clementine's family, but the fact is that Clementine doesn't like her that no, much. No, in so. fact, um, one of her other friends says that the friendship mm. between these two is quite toxic. Yeah, so it's a really tricky relationship. She cares for her, she loves her, but I think that can happen, uh, especially with female friendships, that you can have a friend who you've got a lot of history with, but that she drives you mad. Yeah, I don't well, think it happens so much with men, they just move on. They, um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, Clementine sort of says, well, with, with Erica, there's conversations she just wouldn't have with her. Yes, she, this yes. This is how bad the friendship is. So it's so she chooses not to have much time with her, although, you know, Erica is godmother to Clementine's yes. oldest daughter. So when sort of Erica and uh, her husband Oliver say, come over for lunch, 
uh, Clementine thinks, oh, maybe I'll just make that afternoon tea. <laughs> yes, yeah, just because she knows that her, her levels of aggravation will rise so much. But it's something that she feels guilty about all the time. So she's constantly struggling with, why do I feel so annoyed? She's this, you know, this perfectly nice person. Um, so it's mm. a constant feeling of guilt that she has with her. That Yes, that truly madly mm. guilty. Yeah, that's that's right where it from comes the beginning. In. Yeah. Uh, so, well, anyway, they go over with their kids um, to have this serious chat. Now, we can't even tell you what this serious chat's about because that's one of the delights of the book. Mm. But um, it's then after this afternoon tea that they're all invited next door to Erica and Oliver, Oliver's house, and this is their neighbours. But they are so different. Who are Eric and Oliver's neighbours? <laughs> so Eric and Oliver's neighbours are Tiffany and Vid, and Tiffany and Vid live in a, a big sort of McMansion compared mm. to Eric and Oliver's very neat little, uh, neat little house. And uh, they're big personalities, and they're the sort of social people who invite anyone and everyone over for a for a barbecue. And uh, Vid's a Slovenian electrician, uh, and Tiffany is an well. Well, I think we're going to talk about yeah. so we'll reveal that secret that she's an ex-pole dancer. An ex-pole dancer. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, look, they have a barbecue. They're invited to a barbecue. And, I've, look, I've got to sort of cross-references. Christus Chalakis wrote a book called The Slap, yes. where everything went wrong. From a barbecue, yes. From a barbecue with mm. all friends and family invited to this barbecue. Mm. And we found out right at the very beginning... What happened? Yes, whereas I, I you, don't reveal it. I make you wait. It. I'm sorry. Oh, <laughs> that was very clever plot development. Oh, good. It was. It's tricky because I know I have to keep readers uh, interested enough that they're turning the pages, but not so frustrated that they get cranky with me. So it was tricky um, keeping that lines between what's happening now. So they're still interested in what's happening in the present scenes and then you know what happened at the barbecue Mm. um so i hope yeah i hope i achieved that balance it was for me it was the oh no moment when when i finally was revealed and it was halfway through the book yeah oh no (laughs) good good but we do have a time frame on the morning of the barbecue before everything changed clementine is practicing for something Yes, so she's um, practicing for. She's a cellist, uh, and I wanted to write about a cellist really just because I always wanted to play the cello. I tried to learn as an adult, uh, <clears throat> and everybody was very happy when I gave it up. <laughs> uh, um, so this just gave me the chance to interview lots of cellists um, oh. and to go to lots of symphonies, and uh, which was beautiful, uh, and learn all about their lives. But the main thing that kept coming up again and again when I talked to these people was they'd talk about their audition they'd always say when I got this job they'd call it their job um, and they always seem to remember the audition process and it was obviously really had such a profound effect on them it sounds absolutely horrendous uh, and it's quite different from performing on stage what you have to go through often behind the clothes mm, uh, behind a screen so you can't see who's who's, um, who's judging you who's there behind yeah. that black screen it sounds terrible uh, so yes yeah, so I've got Clementine the biggest thing in her life at the moment is this upcoming audition, audition. Um, you know we, we we talked about the phobia of this the audition phobia mm. and there was also the chat about um 
Erica's mother being a hoarder. There's quite a bit of madness going through this book. Yeah. You know, there's Vid that has his police phobia. There's the Erica with her, her obsessive uh, cleanliness. Mm. There's um, the possibility of kleptomania. There's the harassment the neighbour harassment by Harry next door. You know, that's yeah. bordering on madly. Uh-huh. Or is you're, it? You're right. Yeah, I hadn't, th- I hadn't thought of that. But I think I'm just always really interested in that, in the slight madness that lies beneath the surface of all of us. Because you know, I think oh. I'd only need to talk to <coughs> talk to you for a little while to find out what your <laughs> crazy secrets well, are. Just even in the kids. There's Dakota, who's a young ten-year-old, and you know she's she wants to fill her brain with facts so that she doesn't have to worry about the guilt that she's carrying, and she's even thinking about self-harm. So you know this is a bit scary. And then you know on the lighter side, there's the little Ruby who uh, carries not a dollar around. What does she carry around? <laughs> she carries around a whisk. Yes, <laughs> I think I got that idea actually from listening to a radio show where people were all calling in and saying the the little comfort item that their their child um, loved. Uh, and so that's when I came up with little Ruby will be obsessed with a kitchen whisk. <laughs> Look, um, everything happens quite well until the barbecue halfway through. But what I want to do is get you to read a little bit from here. Yes. And this is um, basically... Let me set the scene. Sam talked about when he and Clementine showed their honest, true, raw selves. And that was when they were having sex. Now they've got kids. And really it's let's get this over with sex. But now, just after... The relation after this barbecue and what's mm. gone on. Mm. They'd both had bad dreams that first week after the barbecue. Their sheets got tangled, their pillows stank of sweat. Sam's shouts would violently wrench her awake as though someone had grabbed her by the sh- by her shirt front and yanked her upward to a sitting position, her heart hammering. Sam would be sitting up next to her, confused and gibbering, and her first instinctive reaction would always be pure rage, never sympathy. Sam had begun grinding his teeth while he slept, an unbearable melody in perfect three-quarter time. Click, two, three, click, two, three. She would lie there, eyes open in the darkness, counting along for what seemed like hours at a time. Apparently Clementine had started talking in her sleep. Once she'd woken up to find Sam leaning over her, shouting. He said he wasn't shouting, but he was. Shut up, shut up, shut up. Whoever got the most frustrated would leave to sleep or read in the study. That's when the sofa bed got made up and stayed made up. Eventually they'd have to talk about it. It couldn't go on forever, could it? Could it? Yeah, this this absolute despair. And, you know, they were kind of like a very happy couple to start with. Yes, oh, yes, they fair. believed they had just a, an ordinary, very happy relationship. But mm. what happens at the barbecue sort of, sort of changes shows what, yes. So yeah. in contrast, Vid and Tiffany had a very good sex life. You know, Tiffany yes. was the second um, wife, the pole dancer. Yes. But she through her pole dancing, also knew that she was doing a fiction and she could read people. Mm, yes. She was the one who sort of knew what was going on and, yes. and, and really that all of these people had to be brought together again yes, to yes. see through their problems. Ah, oh, so we had sex. <laughs> now, often people have sex to have children. <laughs> and through all of these three couples, you know, maybe Oliver and Erica had decided to become child, had decided to 
to remain childless. Childless, yes. There was Sam and Clementine. Well, Sam definitely wanted another baby. And then when you look at Vid and uh, Tiffany, and part of the marriage contract was that Tiffany and they would only have one child. Would only have one child, yes. I find mm. that very interesting because it's, it's one of the issues that you really can't compromise on. If you're in a relationship with somebody and one person uh, wants children and the other person doesn't, where do you find a compromise with mm. that? And it's such a fundamental, you know, deep biological desire to want another child or to want children at all. So I think I explore that a lot because I was in a relationship with a man who who didn't want children and there was we couldn't find, there was no compromise. No. no. We had to... Yep. Find your partners. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly, yeah. yeah. Well, we hope that doesn't happen with Sam and Clementine, but I'm not telling. No, 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 we must not. <laughs> Look... There's the quote, life is a roller coaster. Mm. And a roller coaster makes its way into snippets of each of these people's lives. Yes. And I just love that synchronicity oh, good, of that. Good. And I'm glad that did worked you, for you. Did you, was that the reason that you put it in? You thought, ah, oh, I like that. I'm going to wind <laughs> up nice, all the years. Yeah. Or did yes, it just happen at I the end? I think it might have just happened at the end. Some, sometimes I deliberately put things in and sometimes I put it in more for the plot and then I think actually that also works quite oh, nicely for the theme of the it. story. So the I, true I, suburb. Yes. Well, <laughs> creating fictional works that feel real. I think that's been sort of said about your books and I felt that way too. But the surprise for me was coming across a, a character called Jan. And I thought, oh, that's <laughs> just, me. Just that's for you. my name. That's my name. <laughs> but you've actually got characters in this book for a reason. Characters' names. Oh, the ones who, uh, yes. Yeah, so uh, I've got two characters. So one in the UK where he had um, bidded at a charity dinner for the right to have uh, his name in the book. <laughs> uh, it wasn't with so I've seen a lot of those where they uh, they bid for the right to be uh, be killed off in a book, uh, oh, which is yeah. interesting to be a murder victim in a book. Uh, so I gave him a small role, and then there was another character who was at the Davit Awards. Um, the Davit yes, Awards. Now yeah. these are sisters in crime here yes, in Melbourne. Yes, my sisters and you in crime. One last year. With I Big did. Little Lives. Yes. And, yes. and uh, of course, the only thing you really win when you get this is just a little trophy. <laughs> it's quite a large trophy, actually. I, quite, <laughs> I, I like I like my trophy. I've got it. If I'm interviewed. If, uh, by Skype, I always make sure it's sitting right behind me because it stands out. <laughs> but it's not quite as big as being sort of New York's bestseller and selling your rights to Hollywood oh, well, and having that's... Nicole Kidman sort of just <laughs> you <That's>... and Nicole. <laughs> that's that's special, but it is, it's nice to because uh, I sort of had success in the US before I had success here, and it is very nice to to um, you know, have readers in your own country. I was at an event last night. It was lovely to have a reader come up and say to me, I feel, she was trying to say, I feel so proud that you're an Australian and that you're having this success overseas. Oh, and Leon Moriarty. Look, you deserve it all. You know, you, I'm reading your book thinking, this could be happening in our suburb. This could be happening anywhere. So you've got into our lives. But you've also made us question, well, what do we really know about those other people, our friends, our neighbours? Yes, mm. yeah. I am always interested in that, in how what you see on the outside is never is never the whole story. So, yeah, that just, always fascinates me. Just one last thing. You did a creative writing course. I did. Uh, what uh, finally helped me to finish my uh, first novel, Three Wishes, was a master's 
science degree. Uh, and it wasn't, it, well, it was for uh, technique, it did help, but mainly it was just having a structure that kept you writing every uh, week. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Mm. Well, keep on doing it. This is I the will. fifth book and, oh. The seventh book. Seventh. seventh. <laughs> just keep on doing it. <laughs> I will. Leanne <laughs> Moriarty, and I've been speaking with about her latest book, Truly Madly Guilty. Well, a number one bestseller, but my author has been arrested. <laughs> and given that he writes crime fiction, it can come in very handy. So we're going to have to get him up to the microphone a little. Um, but murder is never an easy business, especially in Zane Lovett's new book, Black Teeth, because it hasn't occurred yet. It's an intriguing premise. So, Zane, welcome to 3CR. Hello, thank you. Now, in some ways, this is an unusual intrigue. We know who wants to do the murder. We know who the victim will be, but... We don't know the outcome. What are you doing? Well, it's there are sort of two aspects to the to the crimes that are in the book. One of them is a crime that took place 13 years earlier. A cold case, yes. A cold case which uh, is uh, solved uh, for all intents and purposes. Uh, but there's also, through the body of the book, the intention that uh, one character has of murdering in quite a uh, gruesome or cold fashion. Uh, uh, a, Another principal character in the book. I, I, I'm quite interested in stories that are not just following a hero who is trying to solve a crime, but mm. is act, but are actually trying to, uh, I guess, get across a, a slightly more complex idea of what's going through someone's mind when they're plotting a crime. Well, th that provides the impetus, this fact that the crime hasn't been committed yet, whereas the cold case is something, yes, it needs to be solved, but it's not... Uh, necessarily driving as much as this will this crime occur absolutely yeah. um, but also then the cold case is providing some of the psychological uh, backdrop for the reasons for uh, wanting to commit the crime so n solving that will perhaps help answer some of the psychological problems in the background mm -hmm. so let's now start filling in some of this uh, background our hero of sorts, if we can call him that, is Jason Ginnaf, but is he who he seems to be? Um, he has lots of identities. He does. He's got largely... A, his existence is mostly online. He spends mm. a lot of time on uh, chat rooms and on message boards uh, and image boards online, and he's become very comfortable with the idea of being anonymous. He's become very comfortable with that uh, privilege that we get from being uh, on on the internet, which is that we can adopt new personalities and new identities. We don't necessarily have to be the same gender or age or what have you. Uh, he's become so accustomed to that, actually, that when it comes to circumstances in real life, uh, in particular as seen in a courtroom at the start of the book, uh, he gets distinctly uncomfortable uh, when he is forced to say, yes, my name is Jason Ganeff and uh, here is what I do for a living. He is overcome with panic attacks. Uh, and that question, that constant question that, that he does of who he really is, is very much at the crutch of the story. Yes, he seems comfortable behind all these personas he adopts, Anthony Holloway, Alan Harper, Stevie, and it's through these characters that he gets into people's lives. And the surprising thing is just how easy that is. I mean, the opening chapter, he's knocking on uh, someone's door. Hello, Mr. Alamein? Rudy Alamein? No response, just the eye. Mr. Alamein, 
I'm with Fortunate Insurance. My name is Anthony Holloway. Still nothing. It was not clear that the man inside had heard. The eye merely blinked beyond it was darkness. I believe you contacted our office this morning for a quote on our Prime Life cover. I've brought you a copy of the policy and I'm here to answer any questions you may have. And he inveigles his way. That's not the only time it happens. Mm -mm. And with other personas, he gets into people's lives. One of the frightening things there is how easy that is to do. Well, he look. He has some trouble. There's one point where he's um, uh, the, there's there's one person he's trying to track down, which is a big part of the the early section of the book. Uh, and when he does track that man down, he claims to be a journalist, and uh, that man sees straight through that uh, particular persona and um, has a very strong uh, violent reaction. So he doesn't always pull it off. Uh, but certainly he's become accustomed to, and he's developed an ability to pretend to be somebody else and to to act as if uh, he he really is this person, as, as, as you just read. He really is this person who's selling insurance. But what enables him to take on those personas? It's part of his profession and that gives him that information. So would you like to fill us in on that as well? Well, his profession is uh, investigating people online. A basically. cyber vet, yeah. Cyber vetting is, is how it gets referred to in the courtroom. Uh, he largely works for employees, employers, large employers, who are looking to vet uh, uh, candidates for uh, particularly powerful positions uh, to make sure that there isn't something in their personal history or in their online history that could eventually come back and, and bite the firm or the employer uh, on the bum, as it were. Uh, so secrets that may have been uh, deleted, uh, photographs of somebody doing something indiscreet. Uh, I make one reference to a, a person publishing an article in High Times magazine. Uh, all, the, all these things that we kind of hope that will be forgotten after a period of time. Uh, Jason is paid to track them down and uh, reveal them to employers during the, uh, during the contracting process. One, yeah. one of the funniest uh, moments, sort of, or a little joke here, he's in court, uh, he's been asked um, what he does. Well, mostly I look at documentation. By documentation, you mean his resume, primarily. Right. So your job was to scrutinise his CV. That's correct. I see. And when you're scrutinising a CV and there is a time factor that you're very much aware of, what, uh, where do you begin? It's different every time. How about in this case? In this case? Yes. In this case, I say, he's misspelled Rhodes Scholar. <laughs> so <laughs> there are clues. But just to what extent does he go in terms of this cyber vetting that he does? Look, I think it's, it's a day job for him and it's a job that he can do from home. Uh, he doesn't like to leave the house. Mm. You know, he's very much a loner. Um, he spends, as I say, he spends a lot of time on image boards and so on. Uh, I don't think he goes too far, really, uh, when it comes to breaking the law or what we might consider a moral transgression, but he's certainly willing to do that when he's looking for uh, one Mr Glenn Tyne, who is a, uh, a major character of the story. Which we'll come to, yeah. And uh, who Jason is searching for from the beginning. But it gets us, well, it gets him information about people, which enables him to inveigle his way into their lives. Mm -hmm. So he knows in that first encounter that uh, Rudy has been searching for um, life insurance. Why we'll have to, or why he needs life insurance, Rudy needs life insurance, the reader will have to uh, look at, or the listener will have to look at. But so much of our lives are in the digital domain, and this is what is actually very scary. And we are so willing to upload our lives. But you've got something called Leet Speak. What's that? 
Well, there's a whole variety of languages that I'm using that I'm using in the book. Uh, LeetSpeak is a simple is simply a way of replacing the English alphabet with um, other identifiable symbols. Like the letter A becomes the number four. So if you look with uh, sort of squinty eyes, you can actually see uh, the the word that you're looking for, but it's not you're not necessarily using the letters of the English alphabet that that we're accustomed to. But right throughout the book, I am adopting a language that I found to be so ubiquitous on a lot of these websites where I was spending time in order to research the book. And they are they are ugly places. Uh, there are very unpleasant people there, but they are places where certain portions of uh, society, mostly young men, have found a brotherhood, I suppose, in uh, discussing everything from Pokemon to, well, there's a lot of computer, uh, there's a lot of gaming going on. Um, not a lot of politics as such, but they are, a, I think, a quite a politically intimidating group. And they have developed over time a very specific way of speaking. Uh, some of the examples I think you may have already given uh, are unusual and, and baffling, I think, to your average reader, but I certainly wanted to adopt them and put them into well, the book. There- an area I wanted to get into then. Yes, there is a vernacular in there from different discourses that are taking place from different groups. So Leetspeak speak is one, but some, I was taking down some of the uh, references, trolling random e-celebs for Kex and such. Uh, Kex? Kex is... That, that originated on uh, oh, some chat room, but the idea is that someone's actually spelling out LOL. In World but of Warcraft. It, I think it might be World of Warcraft. Yeah. Uh, they're spelling out LOL, but they missed the keys, so they, they spelled yeah. K-E-K. Yeah. And so that became the common enough term right. to use for laugh out loud. Yeah. I mean, there was another one that I came across once, pwn for owned. Mm-hmm. And again, same sort of mishitting of the keys. But then this group understands what that means. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're bringing in these uh, terms. Uh, no longer the laconic Chadwick you met last week. Chadwick? Chadwick is I can't I can't remember if that might actually be my my own although it may not be true but look I mean it's uh, I'm trying to think of a, a word I can say on air uh, a bit, <laughs> well but, we'll get to one of those in a minute <laughs> but it's not it's not it's uh, it's a derogatory term for oh, well, somebody I had to look up the urban dictionary right. but it's basically somebody who's allowing somebody else to stay in their house um, and Skeksy, then, I was told, was uh, from Dark Crystal. That's right, yeah. Um, a large, anorexic, uh, prehistoric-looking bird. You have another one we can't use on air, but I can spell it out. It is D-A-F-U-Q. Pause while people work out what that says. And so, it really, it's a, it's a new word. It's being used and written, so it may end up eventually in the dictionary. The import- I think a lot of those words are going to end up being... Uh generally used and I think where they're beginning is in some of the darker corners of the internet. Yeah. Skeksy is just an example. That's that's probably not an example of what we're talking about. It's just the way I, the narrator describes a barrister um, because he's uh, sort of old and bony and he's got a big uh, cape on and he looks like the Skeksis from the movie yeah. <laughs> The so, Dark Crystal. But having that familiarity with that vocabulary, etc. Look, there are so many other things we need to, to get into. Glentyon. Who's he? And uh, well, can I say? 
oh, we have to dance around it, we don't we? It's terrible. It yeah, it's, uh, I, just, it's just trying to figure out how to describe the book to uh, my publisher in the first place was tough because I didn't want to sort of tell them what was what was happening, figuring out what to put in the catalogue, what to put on the back of the book. It gets very difficult, especially with a murder mystery, I suppose. But with books in general, I'm very reluctant to, to give anything away. But his reputation and uh, particular expertise that he had, can mm-hmm. we go there? Yep, he's a former police officer. He's uh, been retired for about 10 years. Uh, he has a... He, he was known as the polygraph when he was mm. uh, working as a police officer. He he could always tell when someone was lying, And basically. he could extract confessions. And he was pretty good at extracting confessions when he when he determined that somebody was lying. And that had a particular impact on the cold case that we were discussing earlier. So, and yes, his profile uh, is then part of, yeah, all of that intrigue that is taking place. Um, so we've got people like that. You've also got another interesting sort of thing. Um, I started calling them inserts. Uh, you've called them a, a sort of flashback where um, Jason talks about his mother and they're sort of like little uh, interruptions into the speed of the discourse. That Because this this uh, book cracks a, a whacking pace in terms of its... A momentum, but all of a sudden we're stopped or slowed down. What are we doing there? Yeah, well, cracking a fast pace, I think, for what is it, three hundred and something pages, um, could potentially get a little dull anyway. <laughs> I mean, if you've just got a really fast pace or the same pace the whole time, maybe it needs to be broken up. Um, I like the idea of getting the flashbacks in there because it, they are flashbacks to the last day of his mother's life when he was visiting her in, in a hospice. Uh, it was important. Well, his 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 relationship with her and that particular day uh, represent when he really started to uh, wrestle with his idea of identity and when he became distinctly uncomfortable with referring to himself by his own name. He was mu- he became much more comfortable being anonymous or being somebody else. Uh, but perhaps most importantly, because through the course of the book. As is, as is the case with a lot of thrillers, the, the protagonist is just kind of reacting to what's going on. There's all these events or crimes or, or what have you taking place and he or she can only sort of react and, 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 and run with it. Um, I felt it was important to get something a little bit more, something a little deeper from him. Which a little is a, deeper, more reflective. Yeah. But it changes the pace uh, because it's only momentary and the lines mm-hmm. fade out and then fade back in again of the actual the other story that's that's driving the momentum. Another thing you do, I think it was chapter two, where you just give this, he's waiting outside the courtroom, but we get a psychological profile of him from him observing a child. And that's almost cinema, uh, part of, you know cinematography in terms of an image rather than an interaction, so to speak, a distance, uh, but we get an insight into who he is. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm flattered you bring that up as an example because that's one of the biggest tensions I face. Having come from a, a, a filmmaking background, having had a big interest in, in screenwriting for a long time, I have always been interested in trying to tell stories in a, in, a, in a visual fashion, but I've never had a lot of faith in my capacity for description. There's a constant tension going on there between trying to describe something that would be reasonably straightforward if it were in a film because you've got people actually performing it. Um, so for you to use that as an example, that's, um, that's, a, that's, a, that's a point for me, I think. Zane, we're going to have to end the interview, I'm afraid. The book is Black Teeth. The author, Zane Lovett. Get it, find out if the murder takes place and who killed um, the uh, Cheryl Alamein. Um, it's, it's a non-stop read. It's uh, fascinating. 
So you had a detect a murder book without really knowing about the murder, and I had this uh, wonderful, wonderful book that I couldn't talk about why it all happened. <laughs> <laughs> oh, they're testy, these authors, 